0: We are serving history, we're in the service of the truth, but in doing so, fiction has a role to play. The artist has a role to play.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Young Vic Podcast. In part two of this episode, we will be continuing our exploration of collaboration and competition, and we will start by looking at the play The Collaboration, which opened at the Young Vic in 2022, before transferring to Broadway. Starring Jeremy Pope as Jean-Michel Basquiat and Paul Bettany as Andy Warhol, the play delves into the real-life relationship and artistic partnership between these two artists. Brought together in the mid-1980s to create work for a a joint exhibition in New York, the play navigates these two iconic artists and their initially reluctant friendship, but also their views on art and on the artist's place in society. I spoke to writer Anthony McCartan before the play moved to Broadway. Now Best known as a screenwriter on films such as The Theory of Everything, uh, Darkest Hour, Bohemian Rhapsody, McCartan has frequently written for the stage and like his earlier play and film the two popes His latest play the collaboration looks at an unlikely pairing of opposites who may find they have more in common than they thought So first of all, uh, let's start where we are today We're the day after the day after two days after press night and the collaboration has opened. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing really well. I mean in my so sort of creative history uh, I think the opening night of this play goes down as one of the most enjoyable evenings I had, which is um, it's it's an interesting blend of satisfaction with thinking you've achieved the mission at least and then I was also incredibly pleased for the crowd reaction not just for myself but for the incredibly hardworking cast and crew and director. Um, Because we had created, between us, a real um, sort of creative space uh, where um, I think everybody had been just vested in an extraordinary creative experience. And um, quite unlike, I think, for all of us, anything we've had before. I think that's a mark of Kwame uh, and the atmosphere he creates. But it's also a very, it was an incredibly loving environment. A very safe, loving environment, and we all just got on like a house on fire, and and from it, I think the best work comes.
1: So, just to pick up on uh, what you wanted to achieve, what you wanted to accomplish, uh, what did you, what what were your original aims? What what would you what, what did you hope this piece would do?
0: I mean, the big challenge with any of these uh, recreations of of the lives of historical figures, it's quite presumptuous. You you didn't know them, and I didn't know either character. Um, and you are doing your research. You're you're finding the limits of history and the historical record. And you there's always shortcomings with any historical record. And from those ingredients, you're trying to make art. And the purpose of that art, for me is to satisfy my deep curiosity about what it would have been like to have been in a room with these two people when they created these works. The reason why I'm curious about them is not just because they're fascinating people, but because they are sort of diametrically opposed in the the world of art in terms of what art should be, what it's meant to do, what we think of art. Um, And I'm very fascinated at this point in my life and in my career with disputes and the attempt or hope that perhaps there's a common ground there between people who are are very very divided um so all those things came together um for me uh in this play
1: and can you say a bit more about the genesis of this so how how did you find the story or how did the story find you and at what point did you decide okay this is the next thing i'm going to be focusing on
0: well, i just finished a, a play which became a movie for Netflix called um, The Two Popes. That, again, had been a, a dispute. It had been a duologue between two. And I was casting around in my mind for what the next project would be and not really having a clear idea. Um, and then I was with a friend who is um, who makes a habit of licensing intellectual property, and he'd just licensed the Andy Warhol diaries. And another person in the room chimed in and said... Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, it's fascinating that they work together, um, Jean-Michel Basquiat and Andy. And I said, oh, really? Then Yeah, they collaborated for three years. So what I what I then did was book a ticket to New York because I found out that at the same time, uh, and this is March 2019, there were two exhibitions happening at the same time, a, a major Andy Warhol retrospective and a Jean-Michel Basquiat exhibition. From that point, I became aware that there are intentions as artists were so very, very different. One was about surfaces, in the case of Andy, um, uh, and one was had a much more deeper sort of call to the spirit in, in Jean-Michel. And I thought, OK, that's it. I, I have another kind of debate here, another dialogue about what we mean when we say the word art.
1: Because, of course, this sits within the trilogy, of which Two Popes is also... Can you say a bit more about what that trilogy is and and, and why it might be helpful for you to think of these three interconnected pieces, although their stories are not necessarily speaking to each other, their themes are?
0: Yeah, and the the unity between the three pieces, and it only emerged during lockdown that this was going to be a trilogy. I didn't set out to write a trilogy. But once I had the second piece, which was about art, and then um, I struck on the idea of another debate about money, I thought religion, art, and money. This is and, and if I have three debates about that, three dialectics around those those themes. Um, why not bundle them? So um, that that was the start of the sort of the concept of the worship trilogy.
1: Now, looking at this historical story there is of course a wealth of material to to delve into it's the you know the diaries it's the actual artworks that are there you know the the well documented artists at, at what point did you feel you had the key into writing this play like this is the angle this is the approach that I'm going to take
0: Yeah for for me the big undertaking um the big gamble um and the big risk I ask audiences to take when they watch these biographical films of mine I hate the word biopics but these biographical films is that I am not rendering in a dramatic form a biography for me there would be no point I'm trying to make art and art can't in the end be subordinate to history it has to allow for interpretation and and new ideas to spring up so when I am going into rooms with people and putting words into their mouth, creating dramatic moments that never existed, um, I hope audiences can, can get past the fact that, yes, this may not have taken place. Yes, this may not have said. But there is an intention to pursue some kind of truth that I've perceived about these people by dramatizing fictionally within a non-fictional context. And that relationship between the creative act and creating these imagined worlds, these these sort of well-researched acts of speculation um, is the journey I hope I can take audiences on. I've been managing to do it so far. Um, And I've, in some cases, sat with the subject, like Stephen Hawking, and he has watched my non-fictional, fictional fictional recreation of his life um, and delivered possibly the best review I've ever had in my life. When the final credits rolled and the lights went up in the theatre, he began to laboriously create a sentence. It was every sentence he created was laborious. He had to wink at a cursor on a computer screen in his wheelchair. Two words, broadly true. And this was so important to me because it was almost as if this brilliant mind had perceived that we are not in the certain, in in sort of nakedly serving biographical fact, but we're not doing injury to history either. We are serving history. We're in the service of the truth. But in doing so, fiction has a role to play. The artist has a role to play. Otherwise, we're all just biographers. Just read the biography. So... It, when you've got a, a play like um, like The Collaboration, um, I, I don't read reviews. I make a point of not reading reviews, but I'm told in a couple of reviews that some of them have taken exception to the fact that um, how does he know what they said to each other? This is ridiculous. Putting words in the mouths of, of these two people, How was he there? No, and sort of, they, they're quite willing to write off the artistic endeavor, on the basis of the fact that uh, there's a degree of speculation and, and supposition here. Um,
1: well, well, what an extraordinary <clears throat> position! Because Shakespeare writing Henry VIII wrote about a real person, and I'm not sure they would be asking that same question there.
0: No, I think <laughs> I, I mean, let's. I, I don't want to criticise the critics, but it's it's lazy, um, and. There's there's always in this in this endeavor, in this project, the risk of being misunderstood in what one's setting out to do. Um, most people come along because they want something that is broadly true and is hugely entertaining, that that instructs them, that teaches them something they don't know, and they have a jolly good time on the on the journey.
1: Well we say it's an act of speculation, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Mm. Um, can you say a bit more about that process of writing in the voice of people that have actually existed and, you know, moving it from fact to speculation? I mean, mm. what, what does that look like for you? How, how, how long do these people live in your head before you can start to write in their voice? Is that something that comes really easy to you? Does it differ from character to character? Uh, how, how do you go about doing that?
0: Yeah, it's it's... I always sort of had a knack for dialogue, which, and you can only have a knack for dialogue if if you have an ear for dialogue. Um, And I I have a pretty good ear. So I'm usually attracted, especially in the biographical sphere, to characters who I already have a sense of and think, oh, that would be fun to write for them. It's not always the case. Um, Pope Benedict, how the hell would you write for him? German, uh, you know, Bavarian intellectual pope, you know, pontiff. Um, so, but by and large, someone like Basquiat is trickier to write for me than than, um, than Andy, Andy Warhol. Um, Andy has a sort of arch comedic style, a sort of Truman Capote bitchiness with an Oscar Wilde epigrammatic quality to it. Um, and I go, oh, I can, I, I can do that. I can do the R.G. or Shucks thing that Andy did, um, and and you have the diaries to sort of get the rhythms and the meter of how he speaks. Jean-Michel barely said boo, you know, on camera, so we don't really have much to go to go on there. Um, but we have his works, and his works are very literary. They're a kind of conversation. They're a kind of diary. Um, the way he's—he's he's like a jazz musician. He's playing with concepts all the time, so it's kind of a, a sort of more of a poetic register that he's in, and it's 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 from the street as well. It's got a graffiti quality to it—a sort of urban toughness. So um, they they were great to play with, and it takes a bit of research. And but there's a point where I go, I have them, I have that voice, and um, and then and then you're off to the races
1: you've crossed mediums frequently from Hmm. novel to screenplay to play back to screenplay is there something liberating about being able to switch mediums or is it like what are the particular challenges of it or
0: yeah there's there's the decision about is this a novel is it a play is it a movie so there's that Um, sometimes there's the sense that it could be all three um, and that perhaps the best way to explore the story is first in the form of a novel with a sort of third-party view, uh, th- you know, I've God um, approach to it all. Um, sometimes it's uh, it's contained. It's a debate, and that and that often suggests the stage as a, as a way to really iron out you know the nature of that drama. But then, if it if it works, if the debate works, if the characters are fully drawn, there's very little to stop me wanting uh, wanting to view this as a movie as well because i always think a great line of dialogue is the best special effect and in a movie you know they say show don't tell it's not true at all some of the best movies they're telling it's about expression of an idea um a lot of um you know filmmakers just don't have that in their armory they 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 don't. They're not interested in in a cinema of ideas. They're they're in, interested in a cinema of emotion, and images are fantastic for that. They carry the freight of of that very very well. But there's a space for a cinema of ideas, and um, I'm trying to find ways to to sort of curate some of the ideas for sometimes into film first and then. Onto the stage as a spin off, perhaps. Um, but sometimes, but sometimes as I'm doing right now from the stage, we're, we're sort of creating a, a model here that we, I may use for su- subsequent projects where we start it, we greenhouse it on stage with a, a select group of actors that we've chosen for the film as well, and we take them out of that rehearsal process, onto the stage, do a do a short run of a of a play and then shoot the movie. It's it just seems like it's the least wasteful way to take all that insight that we've built up through the creative process and not waste it.
1: Mm. Um when you when you actually sit down behind the keyboard and, hmm. and start tapping away, um, how, how how does it look? I mean, do you structure a lot in advance? Is it, is it very free flowing? Do you sometimes find yourself typing something and, and going, I did not. Where did that come from? <laughs> and what's the you know, what comes first for you? the The structure, the voice, or the just uh, I know when and where it's set, and I'm just gonna let my my mind flow freely.
0: No, I I generally know the terrain and I generally always make sure um, that I know the ending or what I'm heading towards. What's the eventual destination? Because once I have the destination, I can plot the most interesting path towards that. Um, I, when I started early in my career, I was much more um, roadmapless. And uh, I had two or three experiences where it just petered out. I didn't know where I was taking it. I became very frustrated, and very doubtful about whether I was in the right business, to be honest. Um, but once I sort of settled upon uh, planning a little bit, not not overly planning, but knowing exactly where, that I had a good ending, that I knew where this was going to go, um, the writing then started to come very, very naturally to me. And because I started as a journalist for a few years, um, I was, uh, sort of dispossessed of the idea that inspiration and talent had anything to do with it. You just had to belt out the story and be, you know, submit it before noon. Um, and, uh, and so I, I work pretty much in a craftsman like fashion, um, and I work fast, um. I like to get into a kind of fugue state and stay in it and keep the cups of tea coming and, and don't lick my head till I've pretty much hammered it out. That's true with screenplays and plays, which there's not that many pages to fill. With a novel, of course, that's, that's a two-year marriage, so we're not talking about you know the kind of four-night stand or two-week stand that, you, that might result in a first draft of a play or something
1: um and do you find that when you're uh, drafting a, a stage play or a screenplay that's the one thing you can focus on or do you switch between projects
0: first draft of a screenplay is all in first draft of a stage play all in And uh i really do sort of go go into a state um and i wait for that for the right conditions and then i i, I go man go you know and uh my son um, often will come in with a, you know, and say, can I refill the tea, Dad? How, what are you up to? And I go, I'm up to page 67. He goes, oh, you were on 32 this morning. And I go, yeah, it's a great morning. You know, there's, there's, there's months of reviewing and so forth, but it's very important to get the foundation down. It's like a dance floor, you know. And there's no dancing until you've got that structure down. Um,
1: Final question then, is there a particular work of art in any any form, any medium, hmm. where you're like, if I'm lost, I turn to that, and that that, that rekindles the fire in my soul.
0: There's a there's a bunch of of um, great artists who, along the way, have made me think I want to do that, and have also made me think I think I can do that. That they, they haven't been so far um, out of my ambitions or reach or sense of what I could achieve, um, that I've been so intimidated by their, their greatness um, that it's made me freeze. They've, they've made me realize that the, the basic ingredients of our lives are the, are the raw materials you need to, to create art. Um, I, I do sometimes do a little masterclass called How to Make Yourself Talented. Because when I was started out in my early 20s, I, if I had talent, I didn't have a great deal of it. And uh, I have a form of talent now that I didn't possess before. And I've created that by making unrelenting demands upon my meagre creative capacities. And I've grown a sort of creative networks that you need in the brain to be able to free-associate get into character for, for for ideas to come into your mind that you've never had until you started writing this thing that are often cl- more clever it's 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 paradoxical to think so but you can create characters who say cleverer things than you would ever have been able to say um and uh yeah and and who those artists are it's a long list I won't bore you bore you with it but that but uh, one needs one's heroes <laughs>
1: Now for the second part of this episode, we are excited to bring a brand new audio piece to you. In response to the James Graham play Best of Enemies, which we talked about in the previous part, theatre maker, director and storyteller Gabriele Oboldi has created a new piece of work that dives into the legend and the legacy of one of their play's central characters.
2: Hi there, welcome to the Young Vic podcast. My name is Gabriele Baldi, and I am the author of this segment, created in response to the Young Vic's production of Best of Enemies. What I would like to do today is take you on the unlikely journey I've been on behind the scenes, following the historical events portrayed in James Graham's play. This story could begin with the 1968 Democratic and Republican conventions in the US. It could be a story about Richard Nixon's run for the White House, while outside, civil rights movements were shaking America. It could start with a collapsing ABC studio, where conservative commentator William F. Buckley and left-wing intellectual Gore Vidal would discuss the conventions, forever changing the shape of politics on TV. Or perhaps this story should begin with the villa in Ravello, Italy, where Vidal would watch and re-watch the VHS tapes of the televised debates until his death, wondering whether he should have said this instead of that. But I believe it's best to start from the very beginning. On December 15th, 2021, at 12.45pm, I received an email from Tonki asking me to create the piece that you're currently listening to. And so I went to see Best of Enemies and I decided to contact the playwright James Graham himself. After taking a quick lateral flow test, I managed to meet him at the cut, ca- the Young Vic's Cafe. Here, in front of my extra hot Americano, James told me about his fascination with the figures of Buckley and Vidal. He told me that best of enemies originated from his obsession with watching and re-watching the tapes of the debates so that he could capture their true spirit by noting down these intellectuals' unique demeanors, their idiosyncrasies, and by transcribing their exact words. James wanted to capture the camera's uncompromising truth through his script, but the more he watched and re-watched he confessed, the more unreal those tapes seemed. He began to think that perhaps. Those debates had been staged, Buckley and Vidal simply performing a script, one that had been perfectly crafted to entertain the viewers and raise ABC's then disastrous ratings. James took a long pause here. Then, composing himself, he added that he would have never believed this strange theory, had it not been, of course, for the letter. After taking the last sip of his latte, James mentioned that during the research he undertook to write Best of Enemies, he had discovered the existence of an unpublished letter that Vidal had written to Buckley. After years of arguing with Buckley in the papers, Vidal, nearing the end of his life, felt that he had some unfinished business with his rival and decided to put his thoughts on paper. This time not publicly, but in a more personal, sincere way. But just as Vidal signed off the final sentence and was about to post the letter, he received the news. William F. Buckley had died. It was the 27th of February 2008. James stared at the bottom of his mug and took a deep breath. Vidal's estate thought it best not to publish the letter, he continued. But a media analyst... A certain Brooke Gladstone had somehow managed to get a hold of it and had shown its contents to him. James pulled out a pen and wrote her email address on a napkin, which he handed to me. He added he couldn't say much about it, except that the letter began with the following.
3: My dearest Bill, after many years of hesitation, I wanted to take the time to finally write to you, in all honesty, far from the tabloid readers and away from the TV cameras.
2: A couple of emails and a few days later, I was rehearsing my introduction to Brooke Gladstone as I entered the Media Analyst's Zoom waiting room, eager to find out more about the letter. Brooke shared my enthusiasm for the historical value of the debates and finally approached the topic of our meeting. She was kind enough to send me a scanned copy of the letter, which I immediately put through the printer. I must confess that my hands were shaking as I held the sheet closer to my face and read eagerly. In this unpublished letter to his arch-nemesis, Govidal confesses that,
3: I have spent these last few years in Rivello, in the villa you promptly mentioned back then when you wanted to portray me as an out-of-touch anti-American intellectual. Here in my TV room I have watched and rewatched the tapes and cannot help but feel sorry for us both. In the market-like context of the American TV networks, you and I turned ourselves into commodities. Our parting ways of life, the spectacle of our performances in the debates, were consumed by the ABC spectators just like a football match. In this, we are more alike than I'd like to
2: think. I put down the letter and thanked Brug enthusiastically. Just before I could leave the call, she told me that if I wanted to find out more about the troubling nature of the debates, there was one particular recording I should look out for, if only I had the chance to access Fidel's archive. One week later, I was headed to Italy to visit family for Christmas. Thinking about what Brooke had said, I decided to take a trip to Ravello and visit Vidal's home. While the tour guide recited a well-rehearsed monologue about the white-walled, elegantly decorated villa, I kept thinking about Vidal's wise words from the letter.
3: This whole time, I have wanted to believe that I was in control of the debates. See, behind the scenes, I was rehearsing my attacks, preparing punchlines and testing them out on bystanders. Then, on the very last day, Elmer Lauer, the ABC president, knocked on my dressing room door and handed me a bunch of papers. It was the script of the debate that was about to take place, carefully pre-written, word by word. I only had to memorize every line and deliver it with confidence in front of you. It will maximize entertainment, Mr. Vidal. It will be good for our network's ratings and for yours, too. I always said there are two things one should never turn down. Sex and the opportunity to appear on TV. And so I did what Lauer told me. And to my surprise, it worked. I called you a crypto-Nazi and, well, you know the rest.
2: I meditated on these words while overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, watching the landscape Fidel himself would have watched the blue plain of the sea over and over again. The debates, just as James had feared, had entirely been scripted. Then the tour guide led me around the corner from the balcony, where we entered the TV room. Here, Vidal had collected his many apparitions on American television and catalogued them into a huge archive of carefully labelled VHS tapes. I was simply too curious. I abandoned every caution and, regretfully, my ethical training as a researcher. In rapid Italian, I asked the tour guide for a favour so that she would leave the room. Now, alone, in front of the screen, I frantically looked for a certain VHS tape. And there it was, what Brooke Gladstone had spoken about. The fatal label read, On the stage nature of the Buckley vs. Vidal debates. I inserted the old VHS tape into the player, and the room lit up with Vidal's black and white smirk, as an interviewer once again asked him about the infamous debates featured in James Graham's Best of Enemies. Vidal looked straight into the camera and said, well, uh, the issue with spectacle
3: being priced over facts and authentic discussion is that truth is also subordinated to that which is spectacular. It means that a likable personality will sustain a made-up truth more than an authentic speaker can convince us of fact. Right? I, I cannot but foresee a future where someone uh, looking for fame or simply for vanity would decide to make up a spectacular lie. I wouldn't be surprised at all if one day uh, even these very words I am uttering right now were to be deceitfully constructed in In an audio audio recording recording, perhaps perhaps. telling some some grand grand, but ultimately ultimately false
2: false story story. it'll It'll all all be a lie lie. it is all all just a lie lie. The piece you just heard was written, performed and produced by
1: Gabriele Obaldi Vidal was played by Youssef Kerkour My name is Tony and thank you for listening You can find The Young Vic on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Young Vic Theatre and on YouTube at Young Vic London.